This is Brian Billick. I'm glad to be joined by my partner, Dennis Green. Welcome to the Coaches Show podcast. Here we go. Well, each week, it seems like it just gets more and more interesting, Denny. We had so many things we can talk about. Let, let's start with a positive. Uh, and, and, and in general, I think the theme, as we so famously learned from you, you know, the, the, we, they were who we thought they were, you know, and, and that's a good quote because we're, that's beginning to establish itself. I love week four. We both, for as long as we've been in this league, know that coaches set the season up in terms of quarters. Absolutely. So we're about to play the last game of the first quarter, and there's a lot on the line for a lot of teams because it borders on that, are you going to stay undefeated and truly be elite? Are you going to stay without a win and truly be terrible? Are you 2-1 and one that's going to get to that 2-2, two and two, or are you 1-2 or 1-2 and two fighting to 2-2? Two and two? Are you 2-1 and one that falls back into 2-2? Two two? It's fascinating. Let's start on a positive note. Let's talk about the three undefeated teams right now and how good are they really the texans the falcons and the cardinals yeah you know and i think it starts with hope springs eternal for all 32 teams they come out of spring they come out of summer they come out of training camp preseason games they're ready to go everybody thinks they're going to be a good team but now is when they have to really face the music that part about they are who we thought they were houston is who we thought they were now three and oh looking good uh ready to take on and play very well football Play good football. Um, I would say they are who we thought they were. You Absolutely. know, I, they they have a good schedule. It favors them. Their division is a weak division this right. year. Uh, I think that they can easily be one of those fourteen and two teams, like uh, maybe even fifteen and one, like Green Bay was last year. They have the big play receiver down the field in Johnson. They got a one-two punch in the backfield. I mean, Foster is outstanding. Tate is also very good. And they've got a solid quarterback. So, And then defensively, you know, Bum Phillips knows how to coach the cover, too. He's got a lot of people who hope they can coach the cover, too, who have a pretty good playbook on cover, too. But Wade Phillips knows how to coach the cover, too. And a cover, too, that can stop the run is a very difficult team to move the ball on. And they have, I think, uh, to follow what you're talking about, this was the one team we knew coming in probably had the potential, and we're seeing it now in practical application, the most balance. By that I mean balance offense-defense, balance an offense where they run and pass. So we knew that going in. Atlanta, I think, is a bit of a surprise because we knew they had the offensive weapons. I don't know, at least I'll speak for myself, uh, I don't know that I thought they were going to be this good defensively. Mike Nolan was on my staff in Baltimore, great coach for a long time, former head coach in San Francisco, has done a phenomenal job with that's basically the same defensive people. Uh, and and they that that's what shocks me. So I'm not shocked that they're 3-0. and but I'm not uh, – got to say I'm surprised because I don't know – I didn't think they'd have that balance that we knew Houston was going to have. Yeah, and I think the thing that they can do, of course, they went after Julio Jones as a big play man. He's a big play man. He makes big plays all over the field. They went after Michael Turner two years ago because they needed a guy that could pack the ball. He's packing the ball. And then Matt Ryan, I think, is the one who's really playing well. In other words, he doesn't. He didn't have to outshoot and outgun Phillip Rivers yesterday. I think he's developed into that type of a player, and so I think he's going to be outstanding. I think that gives them a chance to be that legitimate team that has a chance to close out the first quarter and be 4-0. And we talked about Matt Ryan coming in. Was he going to breach that elite status? Now, we got a long way to go, but it helps, too, even if it's just perceptual. 
He went toe-to-toe with Peyton Manning. Now, they're not actually facing one another, but no. you still look at it that way. Absolutely. He won that matchup, went toe-to-toe with Phillip Rivers. He won that matchup. This was a San Diego team that scored 38 on Tennessee, and all they could get was a field goal yesterday. Right. right. Uh, so he's he's coming out in these matchups very well. So And then Matt Schaub in Houston, I think, is someone we've kind of forgotten about a little bit. Let's go to uh, Arizona, probably the biggest surprise not necessarily at 3-0, and but to go into to New England, the way they got there, to go into New England and beat them, uh, then come home against uh, Philadelphia. And, and I had that game yesterday. That What shocks me is I knew they were good defensively. They won 7-9 of nine to go down the stretch, which you all like to see as the stepping stone to being good. They're, they've now won 10 of their last 12. Ray Horton, the defensive coordinator, and that Pittsburgh style of defense he's installed – that defense is the real deal. You you know the personnel very well. Right. Calais Campbell and Dockett on the inside. Uh, they've added Patrick Peterson, just a phenomenal cover guy. Picking up uh, uh, a guy like, uh, Dem- or, uh, not D'Amico Ryans, I'm thinking Philadelphia, but Daryl Washington really coming into his own after being a second-round draft choice last year. Uh, this defense is for real. It really is, and I think that what they do, they know how to play it. They can apply pressure when they want to. They can play the zone. They're not afraid to play man coverage. they got cornerbacks that can cover as a result of that. Uh, they got Adrian Wilson, still one of the best safeties uh, you know, in the game. And so they're a solid defense, but they're also playing well offense. You know, There was an issue going in. Everyone said, you're going to have a quarterback controversy, which means you can't be a good team. Well, not really, because... Skelton kind of won it in a surprise because Cobb got hurt during training camp. And then John Skelton got hurt. And then Cobb took over and stepped in and did well. So offensively, they're still not having huge numbers. I mean, they only right. had 16 first downs yesterday. So it wasn't a great offensive performance, but it is a good balance performance. They had they forced three turnovers from Philadelphia, of which one was converted into a touchdown. So they're playing kind of a good combination of offense and defense. And they are the surprise team. That is three and zero. Yeah, I, the thing I liked about it was, and I liked Kevin Cobb coming out, and I think now Arizona, it's revalidating their evaluation. They gave the guy ten million dollars, so they obviously thought he was pretty good, and now it, that's being validated. And he had, he's the one that had to do it. Uh, and the thing I liked best, Larry Fitzgerald, who obviously you, you're very familiar with, to talk about a class, the, maybe the classiest guy in the National Football League, had one catch last. Last week, two weeks ago, right? Uh, two weeks ago, not yesterday, but but a week ago um, against the Patriots. And you know, okay, you can't have Larry Fitzgerald get one pass, right? But the other team knows that too, and and you know they're going to clamp down on it. And even though uh, Kevin Cobb knows that he can't force the ball, Larry Fitzgerald had nine nine receptions for 114 yards, including a big touchdown down the middle of the field at a critical time. And it wasn't forced to him. So Kevin Cobb recognized, i got to get the ball to him. I'm going to pick my spots. I'm going right. to be safe about it. Uh, two touchdowns, no interceptions on a 17-24 day for 222 yards. Kevin Cobb really took a step forward to take charge of this team. Yeah, and so I think they single out that, that additional three teams. Three teams, you know, Atlanta, Houston, Arizona, 3-0. and 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 now you come to these guys that are two and one. You wow. know what I mean? And and when you're two and one, you you you're like, hey, uh, I feel good. Uh, I'd feel better if we hadn't lost the game yesterday. San Diego, San Diego was two and zero. They were going up against Atlanta. Both of them, you know, were two and zero. Uh, and San Diego had them at home and got handled very much by Atlanta. How does your two and zero stack up now? Well, there'll be some concern right. in San Diego when your two and one and the one came yesterday, and the one came in the fashion at home that it came in. 
and and you know me, I probably do it too much and, and and give too much credence to it. But to me, home and away is huge. That's the thing that makes me question San Diego even more is they couldn't get it done at home against a team that was on a short week, taking nothing away from the Falcons. At least when the 49ers went on the road to Minnesota, uh, the Eagles had to go on the road to Arizona. Right. Okay, then then that's a qualifier for me. You know, you get extra right. points for being on the road. The gamblers do, so I'm going to give it to you as well. Uh, and and shockingly, I guess the 2-1 and one Eagles and, and 49ers, you have to look at just how poorly they played. That right. was the shocker. Yeah, and I, especially the 49ers. That looked like a classic case, and I, I gave them number one. Yeah, I'm the same <laughs> I way. I said they oh, were, yeah, they were the, the number one team. Uh, which was the death knell. And now. I think they just they looked to me like they believed it. They looked to me like they believed they were number one. We have been told we're number one. And they didn't go into a place like the Metro Dome and playing against a team like Minnesota, who had to win, was sitting there one and one and said, hey, we want to be two and one, not one and two. And they out hit the 49ers in every yeah. phase of the game. That Offensive was the shocker to me. Special teams. They basically outplayed them. Yeah, that was the shocker to me because I had Minnesota the week before against Indianapolis. And I did not see that physicality against yeah. an Indianapolis team right. that they lost in the last minute uh, of the regulation. And when uh, Andrew Luck, you know, took them the length of the field, Ponder did get them back into position to tie it up. But then uh, uh, Andrew Luck brought them down and got the first win of the year for, for Indianapolis. But that aside, regardless of how the game went, like you said, I did not see that physicality. And now, and that's the thing. Okay, the 49ers offense, and we'll probably still have discussions about Alex Smith at some point. Is he a good quarterback, not a good quarterback, elite, this, that, or the other? But that defense we know is for real. And for a team like uh, to, like like uh, uh, Minnesota, you know, and Adrian Peterson was 25 carries for 86 yards. I mean, they ran the ball 41 times for, for 146 yeah. yards against a, a, a San Francisco defense that physically dominated some pretty good teams. That uh, – that 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 was uh, that you now have some legitimate questions about San Francisco. You do, and I think you know what happened when, when I see a team that doesn't uh, play sound defensively. That's when you know they're off a little bit. In other words, you know, he's uh, getting the Ponder was getting to the perimeter. He was getting outside. They were breaking contain. Those are things that you know are mental. That's like okay, you're not really mentally with it because normally the Forty ers are so fundamentally sound that they don't allow people to get to the perimeter and they don't leave guys open in the flat and they cover all their zones properly and i just think it was one of those games where you know we've all been there where you start thinking a little better than what you actually are yeah and that's uh, that's why coming so so like we started this whole segment with I, I love the the emotion of week four a team that's two and one along the lines of the 49ers and the eagles and in two different situations they're both two and ones but the Eagles' schedule now, this is brutal. And so this could send them down a path on, on what is a critical year for Andy Reid and Michael Vick. The 49ers, uh, not as critical because I think they're, you know, they, they uh, not that a win isn't equally as important, but I think their psyche could could manage and hold up a little bit better if they were to stumble this week. And they've got a tough one now. San Francisco's got to go. Um, they're going to play the uh, the Jets. Right. A desperate. There's another team we're talking about that's two and one. That just some compelling that matchups. Easily could have been one and two. Absolutely. They were very fortunate to win that game yesterday. And so, uh, uh, and the Eagles play the Giants. Yeah. So yeah. you talk about it happening if the Giants are able to continue what they did on Thursday night against Carolina. Another we kind of forget it, but another impressive performance for me because they did it on the road on a short week when they went and just annihilated the Carolina Panthers. Right. It seems like. Right years ago because it was last Thursday. But now Philly's got to go play that confident and rested 
New York Giant team, there's some vulnerabilities here for the Philadelphia Eagles and how they're going to handle it going forward. Well, let's flip and let's go to the back end of it, uh, if for no other reason, of the teams involved, two 0-3 teams, the Saints and the Browns. Now, obviously, the Saints are a surprise. The Browns aren't necessarily. I think we knew the Browns were going to struggle. But but where do you go with 0-3, Denny? I mean, with both these, the expectations of the Saints and them going forward – and and the Saints, they're they're playing the Green Bay Packers now at Green Bay on the road. And Green Bay has to win. Green, Green Bay's already lost their one game, right? Right. So they're going to play it. Yeah, I just think it's going to be very difficult. You know, uh, if they wind up on four, which they probably are going to, Drew Brees has carried a lot on his shoulders. Yeah. So I think he's carried more than than any other player in the league. And with the circumstances, this was, in my opinion, destined to happen simply because you're down to your number five, really, authority coach, you know, in, in, in Cromer. I mean, you know, the, the top guy's gone, the next top guy's gone, the other top guy is coaching on offense and surely shouldn't be the head coach, I guess, interim anyway. And then the next guy is gone for six weeks and he'll be back, I guess, after the sixth game in Joe Vitt. I, I just think that there was destined for them to have a bigger road and a bigger wall than they could actually deal with. Uh, and so they have to now, they got to survive it. In other words, if we go 0-4, and they probably are going to, is it the end of the world? Not really. I mean, help is on the way. The Calvary's coming at some point, and uh, we just have to hold on till we get there. Yeah, and I, you know, it's it's a tough one because we're, we're only talking the first quarter of the season and now talking about a team that now has to totally revamp and change the perspective of what they want to get out of this year. And they'll go back to the mantra of one game at a time. You know, but I always said that's all well and good. But you can do that one game at a time mentality and look up and all of a sudden you're 0-6. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah, you got to raise your head up every now and then and recognize the direction of the club that you're going. I agree. I think we all underestimated, and you can put me at the front of that line, of the, the man's going to be put on Drew Brees in a time when he was so much a part of the collective bargaining negotiations and part of that union. Uh, then you go through the season, then the bounty gate hits. Uh, his coach is now sanctioned. His teammates are sanctioned. He's in a contract dispute all the way up into training camp. There's ambiguity about who's really in charge, but then the summer and then all the things we're talking about, Cromer taking over for the first part of the season, and then Joe Vitt takes over, Sean Payton will come back. That I, I think we're seeing the cumulative emotional effect on what is now really so far a very sub Drew Brees par year. Yeah, you know, because he's forcing the ball. Uh, he's, I see him, he's in, they're getting bad field position. Uh, he's turning the ball over because he's trying to make plays that, that he really doesn't have a chance to make. I think he's putting a lot of pressure on him and Pete Carmichael. Everyone said it's okay. Pete Carmichael was calling post, most of those plays last year as, as quarterback, coach, and offense coordinator anyway. Well, I just think that the whole situation is strange. So they this week they've got to somehow try to get through it. Green Bay come out with, with, with some positives. It would be great if they got a win. It would be great if they turn on. But they're also an indoor team that plays on artificial surface that's going to go up there to Green Bay. And let's just say they're going to water the grass and let the grass grow <laughs> a little bit longer up there uh, in Green Bay, because they always do when they play a indoor surface team. They like you to play on outdoor thick grass. And at the end of the day, uh, defensively, we're seeing you talk about they are who we thought they were. Uh, there's not very good defensively. Greg Williams, when I've had New Orleans in the last couple of years, it was a total sellout philosophy of look, 
we'll give up yards. We don't care where we're ranked defensively. We're going to get turnovers because our offense is going to be so good. If we can put you on a couple short fields, if we get gashed a couple times, give up a couple big plays, as long as we keep them out of the end zone, keep them to threes, we're going to make up for it in turnovers. And they had those numbers. Um, and they did it with scheme and attitude. Now Steve Spagnuolo comes in, who's an outstanding coach, but he's much more basic in his approach. Right. And we've talked about it. He doesn't have that group he had in New York when we went to the Super Bowl. He doesn't even have the group he had last year in, in St. Louis. Uh, they're just outmanned right now, and the scheme just leaves them exposed both schematically and in terms of their personnel. Yeah, and philosophy. I mean, he's teaching a philosophy that Joe Vitt, who will be the defensive coordinator, does not teach. Now Joe Vitt's going to be the head coach, what, starting game Seven? Yeah, six or seven. You know, he's going to be the head coach, but at the same sense, there's a defense that's being taught that necessarily, not necessarily in line with it. So I just think they've got a tough situation there. In fact, probably after this week, we won't be talking about New Orleans nearly as much. Right now, it's about what what happened to New Orleans. Pretty soon, we'll be talking about what happened to somebody else, and then we'll be talking about, you know, when 49ers in Arizona lock up home and away on what could be, you know, one of the class matchups in the league because uh, Arizona, right? now has taken the mantle as a top team in the NFC West. And their schedule going forward is a, at least from a momentum standpoint, a pretty good one. They got Miami yeah. you know, at home, you know, so un- unless they like San Francisco read too much into it and read the papers too much. I mean, Miami put on a pretty valiant game. They really should have won that game against the Jets. Not that the Jets are necessarily, you know, unbeatable, but Miami can go on the road and play. But I, I would say, that Arizona has a chance to have an incredibly uh, moving season at four and zero, and what a running start! Yeah, when you when you look at this schedule, I'm looking at it right here, and they they play my and it's not to disrespect these teams we're talking about, but the way they're matching up right now, they are who they are: Miami, St. Louis, Buffalo, and Minnesota. Uh, yeah. Before they play San Francisco, then Green Bay and Atlanta. So they they got the tough stints coming up, but they got a chance to get on a pretty good roll here. And as we all they, know, they momentum could be can si- be a they factor. They could be sitting six and six or seven and one uh, before they get into the San Francisco game. Uh, the team that that is also on three that we kind of knew would be there, and and I don't mean disrespectfully, but it's like who cares? The Cleveland Browns at zero and three. The thing that will be compelling about that, and they're fighting hard, and and you like the improvement that you see in in Brandon Wheaton. I mean, this 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 guy is showing some signs that after just getting blown up the first game, but for Cleveland, the thing that is compelling, maybe in a kind of sick kind of way. I don't mean to look at it that way, but you're talking about an organization with a new owner, Mike Holmgren. There's some questions whether he's going to come back, Pat Shermer. So how does that organization? This is tough. You go 0 and 4 now, and they're playing the Ravens. Well, you know, no, they're, they're not playing the Ravens. They're playing Baltimore. Yeah, they're that's playing right. Cleveland, right. which left to, went to Baltimore to become the Ravens and had to be. So there isn't, it is supposed to be some of that emotion in, the, in it, isn't it? I mean, the, the old Cleveland Browns are now the Ravens playing the new Cleveland Browns. So this is supposed to be a big game. Yeah, it is for the Ravens because they're, they're playing well. When you're on the flip side of that and not playing well, it's, I don't care it's about that stuff. Okay, well, I don't think that I – I think it is the flip side. And, and that's – I was kidding mostly because Cleveland really doesn't match up very well no. against Baltimore. Baltimore is very physical. Baltimore knows that, hey, what we've got to do is we don't give anybody a break. And as with Ray Lewis and his emotional leadership, they will jump all over Cleveland. And try to say we're going to knock these guys out of the box early, and I think this is where it become uh, can become very discouraging for Brandon Wheaton because this is uh, going to see the tough part of the game when you get. 
pressure and get knocked around a little bit. Let me frame this. This is not revenge for January. No. This is for Torrey Smith. Amen. Justin Tucker, the rookie from Texas, a 27-yard try. Snap is good. Kick on the way. It's up. It is good! And the Ravens have beaten the Patriots. Time expires, and the Hayes in the barn! I, I want to change directions on us here in a minute, but let's since we're on that, let's talk a little bit about the New England-Baltimore game. Great game against two very good teams. Uh, and now you talk about a, a New England team that's sitting there at one and two. But but as it turns out, losing all but at home to what it looks like now, a very good Arizona team, right. and going on the road, not being able to beat the Ravens, taking it to the last minute, you know, they're obviously still a good football team, but they too need to come up with the win now. But let's just take a second because people are asking, Torrey Smith, we've all dealt with this before, Denny. Torrey Smith, their wide receiver, his brother dies in a motorcycle accident. He plays in the game, so obviously the, the emotional support of his teammates – his team as a whole, his organization, the city, goes out and has a phenomenal game. Um, let's talk a little bit about because we, we too often lose sight of the fact these guys have personal lives. Right. We've all had players that have had to deal with personal tragedy during the course of a season. Let's talk a little bit about, as coaches, how you deal with that. Yeah, and, you know, you deal with each one totally separate. And the first thing you ask is, what do you want to do? And and I'm sure what Tori said is, hey, you know, I want to play the game, be with my teammates today. And then tomorrow I'm going to be with my family. And, and I'm sure that's what what will take place. Uh, you know, in, in this day and age, we get these accidents that happen. This was a motorcycle accident, so it's unexpected right. injury, unexpected accident that turns into a tragedy. And so, uh, you know, all your hearts and, and your prayers go out to Tory because especially he was such a leader to that family, accepted a lot of responsibility as the right. father figure right. uh, to his uh, five siblings from everything that I've read. And so that's really tragic. But I think that what the NFL players have always done, first off, it's a league family. So all the players kind of pull for each other when when uh, we have a personal situation that comes up. And then also the team, you know. Right. And so, you know, there's no easy way except that you let him set the pace. You let right. him set the kind of the agenda. And then what you try to do as a head coach is how, how can I help? What right. would you like me to do that I could help you and your mother and your brothers and sisters? And know that, that for that three hours, it would be a sanctuary away from the heavy heart that he could focus on the game, right. be there for his teammates, and it give him a little bit of a reprieve from the heartache of the loss. And and had he not played well, no, everybody would certainly understand. The guy goes out and has six receptions right. for 127 yards. Had he decided not to play, everybody would have understood would have been totally understood. Because we, we've had those incidents happen, too. You know, um, uh, I want, let's, let's go back, as we do, because this is the coach's show. And, and, and uh, I think we, we provide something that maybe some other shows don't because of our, our cumulative perspective about some of the coaching decisions that are made. And, and what we try to do, we don't judge right or wrong because we all know that so often at the end of the day, if it worked, you were right. And if it didn't, you were wrong. <laughs> but let's talk about a couple of things that presented coaches some issues, uh, not the least of which, obviously, the emotional stacking that's going on with the officiating that shows up more so with coaches than anybody and no more so than we saw with Bill Belichick at the end of the game, putting his hands on an official that's going to cost him. 
Uh, no one knows the rules better than Bill Belichick. No one is calmer or more poised or has had more success than Bill Belichick. But he even admitted the cumulative circumstances of the games, the call, the pressure of the game, kind of got to him and led to, not as an excuse, but that's explaining why he did what he did. Well, 24 hands. penalties in the game. They were penalized 10 times. Uh, you know, Baltimore was penalized 14 times. It seemed like every time there was a big play, it was a little frustrating. You stop a team, they had a big sack. Stop the team, and there was a defensive holding call. And I think, you know, when you look at it, it, was it within five yards? To me, it looked like it was. Again, to me, it looked like it was a bad call. But who knows? And the kick, you know, was it's tough. You know, to think that, that, that the official who in college game, they have different goal posts, a uh, little bit different way of looking at different style kickers. I think that this kicker on the left, this, this official on the left side, who this week, instead of coaching uh, or refereeing Azusa Pacific and Chapman College, <laughs> had New England. Nothing against and, Azusa Pacific and Chapman. I've coached in that all, level. Nothing at all. <laughs> but it, instead of that, I'm not saying he did, but it, right. in theory, instead of that, he had to make a call on a high kick. Now, man, every tough. official loves to make it when it goes through the goalposts. But when it's high above the goalpost, you've got to make a call and you've got to make it quick and you've got to make it right. And there is no replay on it. Correct. That. And there, that's there important no, it's for either, people to know. They make a call Correct. and that's it. You can review if it clears the crossbar because that, no matter what the tape is, is clear cut. The ball either goes below or above the crossbar, but not the sidebars right. because now that's totally subjective. And I got to believe the official, I don't care what level, whether it's Azusa, Pacific, and Chapman. Uh, or otherwise can't look up and see did the ball clear or not. It was what it was, and and, uh, and i got to believe Bill Belichick knows that. I don't know that he, again, I, he even said it was more frustration than anything that led to it. And his counterpart, John Harbaugh, came out onto the field to call a timeout right? and and was penalized for that. But, you know, John did not give the call-out signal, though, until after he was penalized. He said, I want, he kept saying, come here, come here, come here, and he should have right away right. said this. Because if you're doing the timeout, you actually can go out there and get the, the, the official's attention right. and put your hands right up in his face. But he never did that until afterwards. So I think there was both frustrated. And, and somewhere along the line, I think we'll have uh, labor peace. Labor peace is a great thing, whether it would be the players, you know, or whether it be the officials. And uh, sooner the better. Yeah, simple things like the uh, uh, Harbaugh calling two timeouts when he was out of challenges. Or excuse me challenges when he was out of timeouts right which there again that's something that the officials are unfamiliar with and i guess at the heart of it for me and we could go on and on there's any number of examples i don't know that we can anybody can yet point to a game and say this has cost the game and what's killing not killing me but what's tough for me to sit and watch as a broadcaster doing a game and it was our game yesterday with philly and arizona you talked about it watching the games yourself as a fan that you know, when I learned, we built a house, my wife and I, and I found out, learned that, you know, there's three things, good, fast, and cheap. You can have two of the three, right? With these officials, you can have it right or you can have it fast. Right. And they're opting to get it right with the way they're communicating with the league official on the sideline. But it is laborious. It, it, it just stretches the games on and on. Yeah, the, the, the overtime game yesterday was four hours. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's a long period of time. Hill. This got to be a handoff. Under center. Hill fumbles the snap, sneaks. And did he get it? The spot's going to determine it. They get ready to stretch it out. He does not have it. 
Well, let's uh, let's change gears here again. Let's talk about a couple of the games. There's one coaching decision that came up, and again, let's kind of coach people through what happened with uh, Tennessee at Detroit, and and obviously a really a really compelling game. Amazing how Detroit stayed in it, uh, particularly with the hail mary pass that gets completed, uh, and they go into overtime. And uh, you know, there's a lot of plays in that game that just the you know they had the second Music City miracle, the hail mary, the hail mary that completion, I don't which remember happens once a year. And, and have you, I don't even remember getting one of those in, in all the time that I coached. Um, and so a lot of things were strange that game to begin with. And then at the end of the game in overtime, uh, with about six thirty left to go. And by the way, I, I I love it the fact of the new overtime rule that both teams get an opportunity. Right. I think that's really good, and it's showing such. That you don't have that frustration of one team getting possession, going down, kicking field goal, the game's over. Both teams have an opportunity, so there's an inherent fairness to that. But there's about six thirty left on the clock, and it's fourth and one, and and Detroit opts to not kick the field goal. Now we could sit here and debate on and on about had they gone for it specifically, saying, "Look, we're going to go for the touchdown. We're going for the win on the road." We could have defended that or criticized that; would have been fine. As it turned out, they ended up going for it on fourth and one accidentally. Uh, and and that seems to be the big debate now. Jim Schwartz says that what he had instructed his team to do, they're going to try to draw them offside, see if they could get a cheap one. If not, go ahead and kick the field goal. Somehow that didn't get communicated properly, and this goes back because either the center and the quarterback, either or, didn't understand this was a no-snap, and we all kind of use the same right. verbiage. You're in right. the huddle, and you say, this is no count, no play. No. Meaning, and I don't care what no, happens. doesn't matter. You're not going to snap it. Right. Compared to those times when, and I've done it before, well, you know what? Sometimes a team, when they see you're trying to pull them off sides, it doesn't happen. They loosen up. You can then get into a quick count, and now we'll try to run a sneak against right. them. Okay, that's a calculated decision, but we've done that before. I don't think that was any of this. I think it just was a screw-up, and either the center and our quarterback thought they could get it. Well, it was a misinterpretation, communication. Are we speaking the same language? I'm assuming that all 11 of the players are in the huddle with the offensive coordinator and the head coach if, if he was in there. And when they explain how they wanted it done, in essence, we're not going to snap the ball. We're going to pull them off sides. If it's not there, I guess they were probably going to – many times you can either call the timeout and kick it or let the clock actually run out as far as the, the uh, 42nd clock and then – kicked the field goal from five yards deeper. I'm not sure exactly because he never got that far because what happened is all of a sudden the ball snapped. Now, none of the offensive, the guards, the tackles, and the tight end did not move when the ball was snapped. So they were not in part of it. The quarterback did not do a quarterback sneak right away, so it looked like he was he got it and then decided, uh-oh, I better run with right. it. And so I think it was a miscommunication with the center. Uh, and it can happen. That's why you got to be careful that you don't outsmart yourself, that it's like, hey, let's kick it. We'll tie it up. We'll kick off. We'll stop them. You know, we both have had the ball, and now we have to try to get ourselves in a position where we can win it. And and let's take a, a similar situation. We talk about how we're always – our decisions are always viewed through the prism of did it work or not work. Romeo Cornell was in a similar position where he actually just flat kicked the field goal, right. which you can make a case for. But it was on the road against an Orleans Saints team, and his defense had not played well all day. There's a lot of people who could say, well, why didn't you go for it? Now, it turned out okay because they ended up winning. But had they not, then he would have come under criticism for why the heck did you not, when you were down there and had an opportunity maybe to get the win, 
to score the touchdown and continue on? Why would you just settle for the field goal? Like we say many times, it's kind of like going for the two-point conversion. Right. You, you can have those discussions with your staff on the road at home. Is this something we want to do or not? But you have to pick up on the temperament of the game. Is it a track meet? Is it a slugfest? Is it a 10-6 game? Or, or I should say maybe a, a, a 17-14 game? Uh, or is this a 28 28- you know, 31 track meet where, where you, you know, boy, I better go for the score because, you know, they may run down the length of the field. So those kind of decisions have to be made. Uh, and in this instance, it turned out right for Kansas City. Let's talk about another one now. Again, one of these coaching decisions. Uh, it's so much more fun for us to critique it right now on this end of it than it was when we were having to make those calls. You know, the icing of the kicker. The right. Jets in Miami, uh, Joe Philbin uh, ended up uh, um, icing. The, the Jets kicker, and as it turned out, you know, they can say, well, if you hadn't called the timeout, it, it had gotten blocked or – I forget it was blocked or missed, uh, but he had called timeout. And right. let's talk about is that a good strategy or not? Well, first you try to say, you know, were they weak at guard? I mean, on the one they called timeout, they clearly were weak at the guard center gap. The tackle busted through. He had a clean block on it. What has become kind of commonplace now is right before the center snaps the ball. I mean, right when the hold against now – looks at the kicker and looks back at the center. Boom, they call timeout because the idea is for the kicker to go through and not have to stop and kick the ball or not kick the ball at all. And so it's it's split seconds, and, and he chose to do it. And I think the people that do it, Bill Belichick did not do it. People who do it, they're committed to it. Joe Philbin said, hey, I'm committed to do that. But uh, it, it cost them because they – if they allow the def- the the offensive line to shore up a weakness. Their weakness was protecting that inside gap. It clearly was weak. It, you know the uh, Miami Dolphins busted through it, and then by having to re-kick, now they were able to say, "Hey, look, get that guard and center and tackle gap, get it shored up." That's where they're trying to get through on it. And then the second time, of course, they did not get through. And it has to do with with the, the kicker you have as well. You know, I was I was very f- fortunate in in Baltimore for my years there. We had um, Matt Stover, who darn near as old as I was. And we always used to laugh about it because he, you know, every time someone would ice him, particularly if they let you get the kickoff. Right. He said, Coach, if I could just get the guys I play golf with to let me tee up my drive and <laughs> a then do over a do over. <laughs> he said my game would be a lot better. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it depends on, uh, uh, you know, who you're dealing with. I think Belichick, because you're talking about a rookie kicker in Tuck uh, or Tucker, I should say, for for the uh, Ravens that uh, you could make a case to say, well, maybe you should have iced that rookie, right. particularly since this is how they lost in the championship game the year before. I always like to stand over there and pretend, and we've seen coaches do that, telling the official, look, no matter what I say or do, I'm not calling a timeout. Because right. now you, maybe they are peeking at you and thinking, well, he's going to ice me here. Does that take away their focus a little bit? Are they assuming they're not going to get this thing off and now they've got to execute it? So you could, it's all gamesmanship. Right. I, I'm good with it either way. It's, it's, it's good either way. Um, one one game I want to touch on briefly, or two games, and, and, and then we'll, we'll call it quits here. Uh, but Cincinnati and Washington, boy, uh, uh, Andy Dalton, what an impressive game Andy Dalton had for Cincinnati. Uh, you know, an RG3 was under attack, and, boy, he got beat up big time just like Michael Vick did. Uh, and because it's RG3 and everything that everybody is, is talking about how great he is, but I think I, what got lost in the uh, translation there was 38 points by the Cincinnati Bengals and how way, how well Andy Day, Dalton excuse me, played. Yeah, you know what? I think that he's really fired up right now. He's in that sophomore group, what we call, which right. he's trying to work to prevent the sophomore slump guys who have a pretty 
good first year, come back the second year, and don't play as well. I think also, you know, Andy's very competitive, and, and I think that, you know, it just comes part of being that old horn frog thing. You know what I mean? We're, we're tough. We don't get respect. <laughs> That's just Texas. Huh? We just don't get respect and so forth. And I think he was really keyed up about this idea of all his attention. Wherever RG3 goes, he gets the attention that he's going to steal the limelight, and that's what he set out to do. Now, the whole team has not been given very much respect this year, and with Indianapolis being, you know, semi-down for the second year in a row, there's a great opportunity now for Cincinnati to go in and at least try to challenge for that second spot. Yeah, the because the, you're talking on a day. He didn't have to put the ball up much. only threw it 27 times, which is just what Marvin Lewis wants. They ran the ball almost 30 times, not necessarily effectively, but he was 19 of 27 for 328 and three, three touchdowns, you know. So um, Marvin's got something going there, obviously, and, and you're right. They're, they're all scrambling around. You talk about a team, a two-and-one team that we keep talking about these guys. What do you do with that fourth game? Which direction are you going? You're talking about a 2-1 and one team now that gets to play, I say gets to play, Jacksonville. Now it's at Jacksonville, yeah. but now all of a sudden you finish out that first quarter. They got Jacksonville, and then they have Miami. You know, Then they play Cleveland again before they then get into the heart where right. they got Pittsburgh, Denver, New York. They got a chance to get and steal some games here to get a nice run. So uh, uh, Cincinnati is in that one of those 2-1 and one teams that – they could finish out this first first quarter very, very well. Vic under center, two receivers left, one to the right. Vic takes, drops back, and again, hit! And the ball's out! It's picked up by Sanders, running at the 20. No time left. Can he score? He's in midfield. He's at the 45 of the 40, the 30, the 20. He will score! Touchdown! End of the half! Vic coughed it up. Sanders took it 92 yards! Finally, I, let's talk about my game and, and Michael Vick, Arizona. We've already talked about how good Arizona looks. Philadelphia and our man Andy Reid, boy, I tell you what, this is a dilemma. Michael Vick got absolutely brutalized. I mean, just beat to a pulp. Some of it his own doing. Their offensive line was in transition. Their right. center, their left tackle was not were, were new. Uh, Demetrius Bell had to fill in at the left tackle position for Dunlap. And then uh, Dallas Reynolds had to start for Kelsey. Um and so, and 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 on top of it, uh, um, Jeremy Macklin did not play. So right. one of his weapons was gone. And you talk about a defensive front that just once they saw they 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 were vulnerable at the center position and could overload the inside. Michael Vick did not. He got knocked down. It seemed like on every single play. That means you're, that means basically you're doing a couple of things wrong. One, you're not running the ball enough, and you have to recognize that. Hey, for us to win. It has to be a lower-scoring game, and it would have been had they not had the interception taken for a touchdown or the fumble recovery taken for a touchdown. It's going to be a semi-low-scoring game. We're going to have to run the ball more. We're not going to be able to pass the ball because we're not going to be able to protect Michael, and we're risking Michael getting hit when we're out there throwing and and really giving our indications that we're going to throw the ball uh, like we normally do. And I think that's what happens. Now, we know that Michael Vick still uh, does not execute the West Coast offense, you know, at the same pace that, say, Aaron Rodgers does. He has a tendency to hold the ball and wait for guys to come open. Uh, and I think that's a big mistake, and so that's part of getting hit. But when that happens, I mean, there's nothing uglier when you have no chance to protect the quarterback. In other words, where the team over there knows that, hey, they're running the ball a lot. We get them in long yard situations, so automatically second and 12 or a third and eight and nine or 10. They're going to throw the ball, run a twist, uh, slide over, make the center have to make a call, uh, try to get some confusion going, and then get after the quarterback, and that's exactly the kind of game it turned into. And and Andy Reid, just like a, a Mike Shanahan in Washington with RG3, 
they're doing all the things you need to do when your quarterback's under attack. Quick three-step, five-step, get it out, short sprint, boots and waggles, seven- and eight-man protections, then going to five. You're changing it out. You're changing the drop of the quarterback. You're trying to not make him uh, a, a, a stationary target. The one criticism, of course, Andy's heard it for years, is they don't run the ball enough, right. take a little pressure off. But you're right. The game got out of whack real quick. So you could do that, protect your quarterback, but you're basically just bleeding to death slowly and saying, okay, we're just going to capitulate this game and lose. But you talk about one of these two-and-one teams that is on that cusp of they, they've got to go play the New York Giants now. Right. And uh, this is going to be an interesting end to the first quarter for Philadelphia. They can come out and beat the Giants, and we're back in there, and we're good, and we're ready to go. Should they lose to the Giants now? That's uh, that's going to change the price of poker going forward, I think, for the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, you know what? Arizona only had 16 first down. So it's it's not like Arizona got the ball, kept the ball, and dominated the game. It wasn't that kind of a game. I think that Philadelphia just played very poorly. I don't think they were set to, to go, and they were uh, just getting beat up. We need to... We need to stop being known for, you know, the kneel down play. We need to start being known for winning games, tight football games. That's what I have to do as the head football coach. So, You know, I'm going to finish off. we got to mention the, the, uh, the Greg Schiano again. They did the three straight kneel downs. We posed this question last week. We were always ahead of the curve on this show now. It's one thing for one play, but like it was with Dallas, you got three plays to take a knee, the game's over. Are you going to come at it three straight times? Well, yes, you are. And you saw on the sideline, Jason Garrett, a former player, a former quarterback that's looking across the field going, what are you doing, man? This is, we ought not to be doing this. And Shiano came out after and says, we got to quit being known for that and, 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 and be getting known for wins. Well, you know what? Till you start winning, you are going to be known for that. Uh, we're both on record. I, I just I don't like it. I don't know what can come of it. Uh, and, and it looks like now he's backed himself to the corner where he got to keep doing it. Right. And, and you know what happens is that, you know, the, the Dallas Cowboy court, the center's, Guard centers is is in a goal line situation, which is a goal line charge. Somebody has to suffer. The center suffers. Right. The guards and tackles they can fire off a little bit. It's you know they can help. But remember, there are two guys that can get on the center. So when they blow through there, they're really trying to get to the quarterback. Of course, you know the Tony Romo took the ball and ran out of there, right. smart, and then took a knee. But the quarterback's the one that's got knocked around, and then right. eventually a quarterback's going to get hurt. Well, and again, I keep coming back to the safety. We we do not allow defensive players to line up head up on a long snapper for a PAT field goal. Why? Because it's injury potential. A guy that has to focus so totally on the snap, his head is down. We don't want you to do that, you know, pounding right on the top of the head so they have to offset. This is the same situation. For the center to do his job in that situation, he has one job, get the snap up. Because as long as we don't turn the ball over, we win the game. So he's not about snap, come off the ball, hit, score on the goal line. It's I've got to get the snap. He's in a vulnerable position. At some point, I don't know. The league is going to have to step in here. Uh, I understand all the reasons Ciano says that uh, they're going for it, but to take that beating three times in a row, and that center just got blown up. And, and that's and that's what he's going to get. I mean, and when he's uh, snapping like that, he knows that I'm going to make that sacrifice, and it's not fair. Well, that's going to do it for the Coaches Show podcast. You can download the Coaches Show podcast from iTunes or go to the NFL.com slash podcast. Of course, we want to hear from you. Let me know at Coach Billick. You can tweet me. Let me know what you want to talk about. Denny and I are happy to, to cover all things NFL. Also, be sure to catch Denny and I on the Coach's Show on the NFL Network every Monday at 630 Eastern. Thanks for listening.